Welcome to the Expository Word Podcast, featuring classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. Today, Kimber continues teaching through the book of Samuel, and our hope is that you will be challenged and encouraged by listening in. Let's turn now to Kimber. 2 Samuel chapter 1, and allow me to lead us in prayer tonight. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful for a warm building on a cold night. We are so thankful for your work in individuals' lives that we will hear of later as people are going to be baptized. Thank you for the wooing and the working of the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you that you have blessed us so that we could take a youth trip. I'll go all the way around the world and visit the land where Jesus walked and lived. And we are so thankful to study your word. I personally am glad to be back into 2 Samuel and to be rolling again through expository preaching. I, I thank you for this. And tonight we ask for your Holy Spirit to fall on us, not because we deserve it, but out of your mercy, to make this to be a great evening of encouragement, making us leave here with our faith strengthened and more desirous and ready to live for you. And so help us now as we study your word in Jesus' name. Amen. We need to remember something about 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel is the same book as 1 Samuel. When the Bible was originally given, it, it wasn't 1 and 2 Samuel. And you, we count it now officially as a book, a separate book uh, in the canon. But it wasn't that way. It was just the book of Samuel. And anybody, even the casual reader, understands that the last events of chapter 31 continue right in to 2 Samuel. And so we studied... The first chapter, which basically breaks down into two sections. The first 16 verses, David hears about the death of Saul and Jonathan, and he grieves, and he actually kills the guy who brings him the news because he found out that that guy may have actually slain Saul. He had Saul's crown and Saul's band. And then in verses 17 through 27, David um, writes a, a dirge, a lamentation. He writes a, a, an elegy, not a eulogy, but an elegy. Of, of losing Saul and Jonathan. And if you can remember in this elegy, the, the, the key person in it is Jonathan. In verse 19, and, and by the way, if you can remember this also, I think it's so good, just by quick way of review, that everyone that practiced the bow in Israel had to learn this. And so as they practiced the bow, they would sing this, this dirge, just in, the, in memory of Jonathan and of Saul. And we looked at many different things, and we got then to the application this morning, and I really didn't use my time too wisely, but we learned several things. The first thing is this. All authority is established by God and is therefore to be respected and submitted to. I showed you Romans 13. I showed you 1 Peter chapter 2. We looked at several other places in which the Scripture says that really the Christian attitude is that of respect and submission for those over us. Now, I must tell you quickly this. As a pastor who teaches the Scriptures... I get letters, phone calls, and comments constantly. I get so many of them that you can't believe. And I do regularly get in trouble whenever I preach this part, portion of Scripture. And that is, Christians do not like me to say this. Particularly what annoys many of you is my comments about Bill Clinton. That around here, it's not godly to be saying bad things about Bill Clinton. And I still want to hold to that tonight. I got in trouble this morning again about that. And I, I think we've got to be careful, and I like to listen to Rush Limbaugh and everything, and that's fine, but the, the attitude of the believer towards authority that has been established by God, and believe me, 
Bill Clinton did not just happen to become president here. God in his sovereignty allowed this man to become our president. And we need to have respectful attitudes. Now, does that mean, does that mean that we cannot fight for something good with a good attitude, with a healthy attitude, with a respectful attitude, use the means that the government has allowed us to have in order to be able to try to change things the way the fit according to the Bible? Yes, we can do all of that. But you better do it with a good attitude. Because the rottenest thing of all is this the in the name of Christianity is to see how unbelievers are completely turned off with the wretched attitudes. And I must say that your attitude is really should be this. Politics, government will not change life. Let me tell you, when Israel's government was at the top of its height, when, when, when they were at peace with all of their other nations, that is when the, through many of the prophets, God says, I can't stand your worship. And it's when, when, it's when, for instance, the government in Russia or other places, and there's been great persecution that the church has flourished. And I think we've got to be careful that we make sure we keep our attitude proper, but we need to realize that authority is established by God, and we need to be respectful to it, not just governmental authority, but also towards our parents, towards our husbands, towards our boss, towards everything else. There should be this attitude of respect because God has placed that person in a, over our life, and we need to be very careful in that. Also, by way of review, is this, and I'll tell you, this is just, it got me under such conviction, particularly in second service today, when I realized how far I am from being a man of God. Because we also learned what it's like to truly have a heart for God. Because if you have a heart for God, you have a deep concern for the glory of God. And again, verse 20 of chapter 1, he says, Tell it not in Gath, don't let it be published in the streets of Ashkelon, don't let the Philistine women sing their songs of praise. What songs? Songs of praise to Dagon and songs of mockery towards Jehovah. And it hurt David's heart deeply to think that they would be mocking God's name in Israel. And so to have a deep concern for the glory of God is a mark of the, of the heart of God. And I talked about in the, when we heard about the swaggers and the bakers and others falling, do we glory in that? David would not have. He would have been so grief-stricken. And we all know of the organist that's been at the church for 37 years, and really, her playing style is out of tune and, and out of the right way, but she is not about to give up her organ job because she's been doing it for 37 years. We all know that attitude, right? And that is we're really not concerned about the glory of God. That we could be replaceable or that's, that God's will could possibly accomplish through some other way other than ourselves. We often miss that. And one of the things we see here with David is just like the Apostle Paul, and that is a deep concern for the glory of God. And that is he wants what is best. Paul in prison says, hey, even though I'm in prison... As long as the gospel's going out, that's all that matters. And, and think about this. He says, even though some are preaching Christ purposely, making it a contentious thing, I don't care what does it matter as long as the gospel is being preached. And all oh, that we would be a people that have such a deep concern for the glory of God that we rejoice in God's dealings and are really for it. Now this also leads to something we just began to touch on, and that is there is such a graciousness here in this passage in David's heart towards his enemy. To truly have a heart for God is to be gracious towards your enemies. Let me remind you, look with me in this 2 Samuel chapter 1, look with me if you would back to verse 22. Look what he says. He says, from the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not go unsatisfied. Here, he's talking about Saul and Jonathan. There is not one negative thing said about Saul. There is nothing but their good things are brought up. 
And, and look how gracious he is. Look at verse 23. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and gracious. In death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. We, we sort of feel like David, right then, if he had a little bit of sarcastic spite in his heart, would say right at this point, believe me, I know, they were chased, I was chased like, like, a, like I was a, a prey and they were an eagle and a lion. You know, I mean, they, you, could, you could almost hear him saying something like that. But they were loved, they were gracious. In death they weren't parted. And he calls on others to weep for Saul. He reminds them in verse 24, look at verse 24, of all of the prosperity that Saul had brought them. Hey, Saul's kingdom was a prosperous kingdom. Don't forget about this prosperity. Now, let me ask you this question. If for 11 years of your life, the man that died had been the guy that three different occasions threw a spear at you to try to kill you, had, had absolutely been maniacal, had been unbelievably out of sorts, had chased you all, spent all kinds of effort instead of killing Philistines, had spent all kinds of efforts trying to kill you. And finally, the arch enemy is dead. And you write a dirge and you order it to be sung by all the people that learned to shoot the bow in Israel. And it also go into the official book of Jazar. Do you stop and think of the gracious heart of David not to say one negative thing, not even a slight implication? Nothing but kindness? I'm going to tell you, friends, this reminds me of the son of David. The son of David, who was kind toward his enemies, as I read recently, or somebody told me recently, there was nothing more unfair than the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and yet you do not see an angry man crucified. You see a man full of kind words towards everybody. And such a magnanimous heart attitude on the part of one who had suffered so much at the hand of Saul is absolutely incomprehensible apart from the work of the Lord in the David's heart. You want to know a man after the heart of God? Let me tell you, my friends, listen carefully righteousness is so important. The more I study the Bible, the longer I'm alive, the more I realize your relationship with other people is absolutely crucial to your Christian life. Don't say you're a good Christian if you're holding a grudge against somebody. Don't say you're a good Christian if you're mad at somebody or not talking to somebody. Don't say that you're some great Christian if, if, if you're snubbing somebody. Don't do that. My, my friends, it is so important that we are gracious and tender-hearted. Paul says, be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you know the long list of virtues of this is what love is like. This is displayed. Now listen, Christian friends, we just came out of marriage and the family month. And it, 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 it seems to me that one of the sermons that shook people up more than about anyone is the one about husbands we did a few weeks ago. I saw more people crying in both services. There were more people crying. And more people ordered that tape, they tell me, than, than, than most any tape in recent history at the church. You know what that tells me? It tells me that there isn't a lot of tenderness, a lot of kindness, a lot of love at home. We, we need to be people that are gracious in our heart towards our enemies, how much more so towards those that we're living with. And so this gracious heart of, of David is seen, and especially as we can't have time to develop this deep concern for the glory of God, it just it puts me back in my place and, and makes me sit back and say, you know, I don't really live for God. Not like David did. Something else, friends, is the silence is golden. You talk about silence being golden? I think it's so interesting that David does not mention God in this entire dirge. God is not mentioned. And that is so significant because if you go back to the 26th chapter, you will see that David clearly pronounces, I know that God will one day have Saul die in battle or something else will happen to him. When David heard the news, there no doubt had to be, finally, God has taken his burden away. There had to be some of that in his heart. And yet, not even a slight hint of this is found. This is clearly 
something that shows the sweet, beautiful wisdom from above that is as peaceable and pure and easy to be entreated and full of mercy and good works. We've got to be kind towards one another. A friend of mine put this on my desk today with a little note, and I was going to make it to an overhead, but didn't do it. Let me read you what it says. Listen, in regards to the way we treat people. The true measure of a person's character is how one treats the regular and everyday people with whom one comes into contact. That is, those who can do nothing to advance your career, your position, or your personal wealth. How do we treat one another? We can have all kinds of Christian things that we're doing. Bottom line is, righteousness is what God loves, and that is the way we treat each other with kindness, with tenderness, with compassion. What's the last thing we take from this passage? The part we never got to today at all is this, the importance of true friends. Look at verse 25 with me again of this chapter. Look what he says. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. The weapons have war, have perished. Do you recall the last meeting between David and Jonathan? Go back with me to chapter 23 of the last book, or no, actually of the same book, but of the, the first division. Chapter 23 of 1 Samuel. David had been on the run about eight years at this time. This is right before you go into those trilogy of chapters. I, probably you don't have it as clear in your mind as I do, just because I studied it mo- a little bit more than you did. But in 24, 25, and 26, there's a trilogy in which David spares Saul's life, even fights his men about it, and says, we're not going to... They were singing, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord hath made remember, and David says, no, it's not. We're not going to touch the Lord's anointed. Well, in 23, go back to verse 14. Look at chapter 23 and verse 14. Here was the last time they had seen each other. That, that's recorded in Scripture. So David and his men... Excuse me, verse 14. David stayed in the desert strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph, chapter 23... Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. While David was at Horish in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. And the two of them made a covenant between the Lord. And then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horish. What a, what a friend David, Jonathan was. Knowing, he was supposed, knowing that he had the right to be the next king. Knowing that he had the right to the throne. His father even says, you stupid idiot! You're supposed to be the next king! You don't want David to be head king, do you? You're supposed to be it. What, what's wrong with you? And Jonathan understood one thing. And Jonathan goes down in Scripture forever as the best friend a man could have. And you want to know why? Because Jonathan cared about God's will being done more than anything else. Jonathan said, I don't care if I'm good to, if I lose a kingdom over this. I want God's will. And if it means David's going to be promoted, then God give glory and strength to David. And Jonathan finds out that Saul day after day is pursuing him. Everyone in Israel knew it. Jo- Jonathan secretly finds out where David is hiding. And one night, one night they have a secret meeting. And Jonathan just goes all the way across the countryside through hours of, of terrain and up and down hills and goes out of his way to find his beloved friend David just to tell him this, David, don't worry. God's word is true. You will be king. My dad even knows this. Isn't it interesting that that's chapter 23? And in chapter 24, if you remember our New York Stock Exchange, the chapter 24, David's at the height. 
That's in chapter 24 when, when David says, he's arguing with his men, no, we're not going to kill him. God will, God, will touch his, God will take out his anointed when he wants. Don't you see what a good friend he was? He gave it all up for, for, just for David. Listen, friends, one man wrote this. This last stanza of this lament is devoted to Jonathan, who was the best friend whom David would have in his lifetime. They had met on the day in which David had slain the Philistine giant, and they had become instant friends. That relationship had developed and matured through the years, and it survived many challenges, most of which were created by Saul's insane jealousy of David. They had made pledges to each other before God, and those pledges were to be kept even after Jonathan's death. Our day is always trying to describe the word love to sexual love, and that makes it hard to understand David's declaration of his love for Jonathan. What David is describing is a friendship that was long-lasting, consistent, loyal, selfless, responsible, and realistic. It was a friendship that ennobled their lives while they were both living, and a relationship that enriched David's memory after Jonathan was dead. Many people live their lives without experiencing a friendship of this dimension, and they are diminished as a result of it. May I ask you this? What kind of friend are you? If I did your funeral this week, who would speak of your encouragement, of your care, of your involvement in their life, of your loyalty to them as a friend, of your selflessness? You know, I wonder, after seeing Jonathan being such a friend, and we studied all this out, and there's much more to say about this, but I, I wonder if Solomon, David's son, who writes the book of Proverbs, I wonder if he thinks about Jonathan when he writes things like this, a friend loves at all times. I wonder if he thinks of Jonathan when he says things like this, perfume and incense bring joy to the heart, but the pleasantness of one's friend springs from his earnest counsel. One of the things that David knew is that David knew that Jonathan loved him. Jonathan travels over hill and dale and sacrifices his, his, his own father's anger. He could have been, had another spear thrown at him. We already know that he took a spear thrown at him already for, for standing up for David. He did all of that, and he sits there and he gives his earnest counsel. And can I tell you, you say, I'm not too good in interpersonal relationships. I don't know much about being a good friend. Let me just tell you one quick thing the book of Proverbs teaches. Here's a good friend. A good friend gives earnest counsel. That means this, they're soulish. It's from their soul. They are with you, heart and soul. They, they, they're, they're, they're behind you. They care. They express, they express the fact that you are important. They express the fact that they care about you. They express the fact that God's will will be done according to your life, and they encourage you to go in the way. That's a good friend. Spurgeon said this, Some Christians try to go to heaven alone in solitude, but believers are not compared to bears or lions or other animals that wander alone. Those who belong to Christ are sheep in this respect, and they are to love and get together. Sheep go in flocks, and so do God's people. We need to be together. We need to be together. People say, well, what, you know, what ministry do you have? How about the ministry of being a good friend? One man said, we take care of our health. We lay up our money and make sure our retirement plans are correct. We make our roof tight and our clothing sufficient. But who provides wisely that he shall not be wanting in the best property you can possibly have in all of life? Friends. Charles Tremendous Jones, I don't quote him a lot. But he said this, five years from now, you'll be pretty much the same you are today except for two things, the books you read and the people you get close to. A real friend is one who helps us to think our best thoughts, to do our noblest deeds, and to be our finest selves. To have a good friend is one of the highest delights in life. To be a good friend is the one of the noblest and most difficult undertakings. 
And as C.S. Lewis said, true friends don't depend on gazing into each other's eyes, no. They may show great tenderness towards each other, but they face, they're faced in the same direction, towards the same common projects, interests, and goals, above all, towards the same common level. In other words, true friendships, we're living for Jesus Christ, and we're encouraging each other to go on the right way. But I would, I would just tell you, I've walked this auditorium many days, because I've heard so many things that's, that's hurt me as a pastor when, I, when I, I say, you know, the church is growing and we love all that, except we can't get close to anybody. Those people are mean or cruel or don't talk to one another, whatever it is. And we got quite a reputation if you'd only hear what I hear. I mean, it's like, it's like you think all of you are just like, you say hi to you. And, you know, that's, what, that's how it seems like. And so I've walked through this auditorium and I've prayed, God, make people, you can't orchestrate it. I can't say, Don, make sure that 15 people become friends this week. That's an order from me to do it. I, 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 can't, I can't do that. And so my prayer is, Lord, let true friendships develop around the common theme that we're all going after Jesus Christ. We're all living. I'm so encouraged. I, I will hear women talk sometimes. They're highly frustrated with their husbands, but a godly woman won't allow another godly woman to get away with the disrespectful, ungodly response to her husband. You know that? And that can be so much more effective than me saying it. And true friendships are so important. And David says, your love for, my, your love for me, Jonathan, was the, it was the sweetest, best kind of love I ever knew. Nothing was more sacrificial or, or kinder than that. Our Father in heaven, please help us to become good friends. We understand a little bit more now why Paul said, may your love abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. And may, Father, you, you richly bless this congregation with the kind of friendships that are lasting, the kind of friendships that are stick it out through the dark times, through the up times, through the down times. And may you bless us, Father, with a richer, deeper spiritual life. How much we miss when we don't have friends. And Lord, may we have the kind of friends that push us on to live for your glory. We ask for your help in, in these matters. In Jesus' name, amen. And that concludes today's expository word. Please join us again for more classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. Take care.